0: Very interesting piece at theconversation.com that caught Andrew and my eyes the other day entitled, Working from Home During COVID-19, What Do Employees Really Want? And we uh, did a little digging into the piece and found out that it's, it's actually been put together by a team of six people from, uh, well, representing six different schools, three in Canada and three in the United States. The lead on the story is Professor Johanna Westar from the University of Western Ontario in London, where she is a professor of labor and employment relations. Johanna Westar joins us this morning. Professor Westar, good morning and welcome.
1: Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: it's wonderful to have you along here. We were just talking about the, the working from home thing. And, and uh, just before we even dig into the nuts and bolts of what you've written about, uh, just on a very general basis, Johanna, I was talking about, well, there are, there is within our ranks, there are people who can't wait to get back to the workplace. Oh, please. And there are others who would be perfectly content never to go back to the workplace. I suspect most of us are in the middle of those two extremes, right?
1: Absolutely, and that's what we saw in, in this study as well. And And it was a study of people working in universities, so not just faculty members, but also um, non-academic staff. So there are many, many people at universities who work in administrative and, and general staff positions, like a lot of other workers even outside of the university sector. Sure. Um, and, and we saw exactly that. Uh, it, it was actually a... Um, a, a partnership of about ten universities um, in Canada and Australia, yeah. and um, most people want kind of a balance, something that is uh, a, a little bit from home and and a little bit from from the office, um, probably dictated on on sort of their their own schedule. Um, and we saw that especially among the the non academic staff who normally don't have as much control over their their working conditions in sure. that way, you know. Faculty are used to having um, quite a bit of flexibility, and and often do work from home much of the time. You know, if if a, a professor is teaching, they go into the university usually, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes if they're working on a writing a paper or doing some research, they might do that from home and. And so we see that 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 preference kind of remains in that group. But for for people who usually have to go in every single day, um, they're sort of realizing, hey, I can I can do a lot of this from my house and it it might be all right.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to us a little bit, Joanna, if you would please, about how the combination of the uh, the collaboration began. As you mentioned, there's a great number of schools, post secondary uh, institutions in both Canada and Australia. How did that connection happen, and why did you uh, decide to le- join joint venture on this research?
1: Yeah, so it actually was an idea um, from a colleague of mine, David Peets, who's at Griffith University in Australia, and um, a number of us are involved in a, a research network um, who all kind of study labor and employment issues. So we we are in a, a huge community, so we do have um, have contacts. And he really just sent out an email that said. I'm thinking of doing a survey of the people at my university just to see what's going on. And this was really in the heart of kind of that, that first wave of the pandemic. Mm-hmm, okay. um, and he just asked, does anyone else want to join up? And and then people started coming forward. And I think a lot of us had to think about our own workload at, at that point because it was a very busy time as, as everyone was really dealing with that first transition. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seemed, you know, sometimes with research you have to just jump on it when it happens. And I think that's what a lot of people have found with this this COVID-19 circumstance. You know, now is the time to collect the data. Otherwise, it's gone. Um, And so it was really just whoever was interested. And and then each of us spoke to um, the administration and employee groups on our own campuses uh, uh, to get sort of permission to do the survey at our own campuses. And then we, we pooled all the data together. So we have about... 11,000 people who actually answered the survey which is actually a really large data set Um, and we have we've got lots of different ways that we're looking into it now.
0: Uh, Johanna did you have any um, input into the questions that were asked of the survey group within your jurisdiction or was the same set of questions placed before each person in the survey?
1: Yeah, a little bit of both, actually. So we we wanted to have as many common questions as we could. For sure. Because that allows, you know, for the deepest comparison. But there are a lot of similarities um, between Canada and Australia, but there are some differences as well. Some of them just in terminology. You know, the, the, the word we might use for for a professor type here in Canada is a little bit different in Australia. Or we might refer to staff um, departments in one way and they might another way. And even from university to university, we use slightly different words. So we had to um, go through the survey and make sure that the terminology, the words that we were using, the labels, made sense for every context. And then some universities were able to... um, also tailor the survey a little bit for for their particular environment, um, especially when there are were major differences, um, and and so we were uh, doing a bit of a balancing act there to make sure that we were as as comparable as possible, but making sure that the survey made sense in, in each institutional context.
0: Here's a, here's a kind of a strange question for you. As we look at uh, huge, vacant office towers in major cities around the world, some of whom uh, are being are pretty expensive, and a lot of companies looking at their overhead and the fact that, well, nobody's been in these towers for many, many months, and we're really <laughs> carrying this enormous, enormous overhead. And our, our people, many of them, seem to be very happy not to have been at the big expensive office tower for the last six months. Uh, I'm curious, though, about planning. Because as the as the workforce, uh, generally speaking, plans going forward, Johanna, the planning is going to be different again to accommodate what you've already identified. The fact that a lot of people have taken advantage of the experience of working from home and decided, hey, this really works for me. Perhaps maybe even up to about 75 percent of my working uh, duties can be dispatched and with here at home. So as uh, they plan for their workforces going forward uh, a lot of boards of directors and uh, 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 university boards are planning on well how are we going to utilize all of this currently very empty space in the future is that part of the uh, the questioning or part of the result package that you hope to deliver up
1: yeah I, I think you're you're definitely on on to something there because um, I think what a lot of this research shows is that we really need to be having these conversations. And the more that we can be having these conversations with, with everybody involved, you know, so the, the full table of stakeholders, yeah. the better that outcome is going to be um, about what we need. And and maybe maybe there are some creative ideas around sharing space. And it's it's quite funny because up to now, at least at my university, Space has been a premium. This sure, yeah. has been something that you know we kind of fight about. Like That's right. who's using Turf that I, That's I right. want it. Um, whereas now you're you're looking at um, a whole new way of conceptualizing that, or or even parking. Um, there's lots of parking space on campus now that is that is sitting empty, um, but also parking is often a revenue source for universities um, that that they use to kind of make up for shortfalls in other areas. So. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of implications there that um don't have immediate answers. Um and those answers maybe um, may may take some time to to materialize as we get used to whatever the next phase is, is gonna look like. But but these are definitely the questions. How do we now use the spaces that we have the, the in the best ways? And you know, this has environmental implications as well, right? No question. Which is where this covid pandemic for all of its negatives does have some some positive pieces if it if it prompts us and fuels us to think about new ways that we can bring people together to work um Commuting is a massive issue in, in most places where there are, there are universities and, and other dense urban areas. Um, so the implications go, go quite far. A couple of
0: facts, factoids for your Sunday morning here. Quote, people vary a lot in how much they want to work from home. But one thing is clear. Most want to do some of their paid work from home. But few want to work at home all the time. Women want a bit more time working from home than men and Canadians want a bit more time working at home than Australians but not by much this is a facts contained in a new article at theconversation.com entitled working from home during covid-19 what do employees really want the lead author of this piece is professor johanna westar from the uh, University of Western Ontario. Johanna is on the line from London, Ontario. We've been talking about uh, this joint effort, a study com- uh, conducted by universities, three at least here in Canada, and more in Australia, nine schools involved. And the study involved the workers at those schools, at post-secondary institutions, universities here in Canada and in Australia, as sort of representative workforces. And Johanna, within that group, you have the academics, the- the people with typically more flexibility already built into their work lives. And then you have the full-time support staff, for lack of a better word, whose uh, schedules are much more regulated um, than their academic counterparts. So you had two working groups within one situation that provided two sets of results because you had two different sets of circumstances. That was a bonus almost, wasn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely, and it it allows us to to really kind of dig into what those factors are are about. And and when when you're trying to decide um, the the best way to approach work for a group of workers, you really do need to take into consideration what their current circumstances are. And so, you know, if if we just said, well, administrative staff want to work from home more than academics, that's not quite right because we already have to take into account that academics work from home a fair bit anyway sure, um, yeah. and so those those differences um, are a little bit more nuanced and, and having um, a large population of sort of two groups of workers and then, again, with, with some differences even within those groups, we get to really um, dig deep into some more interesting questions.
0: Yeah, and of course, the title of the article is Working from Home During COVID-19, What Do Employees Really Want? And you actually identify that. Um, and, and so let's deal with some of the, uh, some of the specifics that 11,000 survey people uh, you were able to identify as common denominators between a very large sample group. And as I understand, at number one on the list of what do people work from home want is fewer interruptions, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, which is really interesting. Um, But people, and I I think this this in some ways is being driven more from from that um, academic or or the non-academic administrative side where if you think about many offices, Lots of people work, um, in slightly more open spaces, mm-hmm. uh, and, and often have folks kind of wandering by their desk sure. all day long. Um, and those people out there in the world who have their own office with a door are very privileged, um, that they can close that door. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a, a lot of people really found that they could be much more focused when they worked from home. With the caveat that that we did do this survey kind of right in the height of of lockdown in these two countries where um, kids were still home from school. So things have changed a little bit now where kids have gone back to school. So we do see some differences um, there and and we're still digging into the numbers around differences for women and differences for parents. But on the whole, people found that, that working from home was a bit more peaceful, a bit a bit more less distracting um, from just sort of um, their their peers and colleagues popping
0: in. Going forward, and this of course is, uh, this is the, the COVID has been a game changer and you and your colleagues around the world are reacting to the changes in the game with facts and it's wonderful of you to do so. So all of these facts will be placed on the table going forward and we talked about empty office towers and all that sort of thing already, Johanna, but as as we go forward and we, we've clearly identified the fact that there is at least a group uh, in our midst that is much happy er uh, working from home more frequently than at the workspace. How's that, how are we going to, how are all of these facts that you've gathered going to help employers as they plan? Well, how much, how much office space are we going to need? And how are we going to treat people who come back to work and go, you know, boss, uh, my productivity hasn't been affected by working from home. And frankly, I'd prefer to stay there. You just keep emailing my, my, my assignments and I'll hand them back to you uh, with bells on. No problem. So how are, employers gonna deal with all of these realities. These facts will help, won't they?
1: We hope that they will. Um and it, it really is, you know, the, the best model is to make your decisions based based on evidence um and, and based on, on the circumstances of your place. And I think the point is that um kind of big sweeping changes aren't going to be the best way to approach this solution uh-huh. because what we're finding is that a lot of people are different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, different groups of workers need different things. And individuals within those groups sometimes need different things. Because what we also learned is that many people did experience a lot of stress during this time. Now, again, some of that is just because of the pandemic itself and also because um, everybody was in the household Mm. at this time. Um, But people also report being more isolated and feeling a lot of distress from that as well. So I think the important piece of evidence here is this idea of, balance and of balancing the needs and um, if employers, so these university administrators but also other employers who are facing similar questions as, as the ones in, in this survey um, are how can they engage their workers to get a sense of, of what it is that they're thinking that they want and then how can those groups work together to come to a, a most optimal solution or a solution that's going to work best for both parties and it, it may take some time. It, it would be rash, likely, for employers to just sell off half their office space yeah, exactly. or something like that mm. in the short term. Um, but but little things, like communication, uh, is one thing that we identified as being tricky in this environment. Because even if you're working from home and you're getting fewer interruptions, and that's a positive, um, many people in the survey did identify that communication has become harder. yes. Um, Because you don't just have that informal um, way to get your answer addressed or um, you're not able, especially if you're a new employee, right? If if you're remote more often, you you don't kind of make those comfortable relationships with Mm -hmm. your peers so that you kind of can reach out to them when you have a problem. And I mean, I've noticed at home, I don't have the home phone numbers of all my colleagues. So really all I have is email, which is not always the best way to communicate. So some workplaces need to really think differently about how they send work out, how work comes back. You know, just those kind of workflow mechanisms sure. that, are, that are digital, and also communication. And lots of companies have sort of addressed this already. That that they have kind of these instant messenger chat systems that that all their their um, staff are on. But um but some places and universities I would count as one of them haven't really had to cross this bridge. So those are all pieces that that if um employers can can kind of take stock and get as much evidence as they can and, and listen to what their employees are saying, and then those groups uh, can, can make some decisions together, that will be the, the best way forward.
0: Indeed. And, uh, and a great summary too, Joanna. I appreciate that because basically the, the title of the article again, friends, is Working From Home During COVID-19. What do employees really want? And the article basically says, ask. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. <laughs> get that conver- right get that <laughs> conversation going don't impose ask and you'll get a much better uh productivity level a cooperation level and satisfaction level joanna westar thanks very much for this it's a great article kudos to you and your teammates for for uh, a provocative piece and we do appreciate your joining us to share it with us here on the west coast this morning
1: Thanks so much, Sterling, and have a great day out there
0: in BC. We shall indeed. Professor Joanna Westar joining us from Western University, University of Western Ontario in London. We called it Western, best party school in the province when I was going to university. I saw an editorial in the Vancouver province a couple of days ago that caught our attention. Uh, it was, uh, it's time the city of Vancouver staff get in touch with reality, was the large headline. The subhead, city staff that is clearly out of touch with the transportation of realities. Of today ...and the significant financial challenges that many lower mainland families are facing. This was written by Blair Qualley, who is the president and CEO of the New Car Dealers Association of BC. It said so right in the paper. So we thought, well, let's give this guy a call and find out more. Because, of course, it's all about Vancouver's proposed climate action plan, which includes, among other things, mobility pricing. So we check in today, and welcome to the program... Blair Qualley, who joins us from Langley.
2: Good morning, Blair. Welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Well, it's good to have you with us uh, as we contemplate uh, the uh, the climate action plan and uh, looking at the greening of Canada at all levels of government, including municipal. I think we should probably start off by, by pointing out that the new car dealers association of BC is not against climate change. In fact, you're at the tip of the spear when it comes to selling British Columbians electric vehicles, for crying out loud, Blair.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Our members, of course, uh, recognize, you know, uh, climate uh, change is an issue and a challenge that needs very thoughtful discussion and and debate. And uh, as you mentioned, we've been, I guess, since 2010, Uh, working with the provincial government administering the clean energy vehicle program for the province and uh, helping people uh, through our dealer network uh, put their toe in the water around electric vehicles.
0: By the way, just as an aside question, does the province still offer some incentive, some grant for people who want to buy a new electric vehicle, Blair, or is that program ended by now?
2: No, no, there's uh, there's still money uh, there. I think uh, the counter is just uh, under five million dollars at the moment, and then there's another five million that's been approved in the last budget uh, that can be added in as uh, as the funds are drawn down. So you can get up to three thousand dollars off a qualifying electric vehicle uh, if you uh, come into a, a new car dealer and have a look at one and find one. They'll give you the money right there and then. Interesting. do, and, the, do the feds still offer? Add, yeah. Just just to add to that, if you have an older a uh, gas vehicle, and you are planning to buy an electric vehicle. Okay. You can also get up to six thousand dollars from the BC Scrap It program. So oh. lots of lots of uh, rebate money available if you're wanting to try out some new technology. Interesting.
0: And do the feds still have some on the table as well? I know they started out a few years ago doing that. I don't know whether they've uh, rescinded that uh, program or not.
2: No, that's still available too. Oh my! So you add that to the three thousand, the six thousand, and then five thousand from the feds as you can see it's a pretty nice chunk of change to uh, help you take on uh, and and try out an electric vehicle
0: interesting so you're there in langley and like a lot of people who live in langley uh you from time to time have to go downtown for uh your living do you do it every day blair or are you lucky enough to work and live uh to work nearer to where you live
2: Uh, well i'm 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 blessed that i i do get to live uh, near where i work Uh, we moved our office to langley uh from richmond a couple of years ago uh, in part due to uh, sort of the challenges around access to uh, Richmond uh, with traffic congestion tunnel and all of those things uh, but yeah i'm i'm close to work now which is is terrific but i used to commute from Langley to Richmond uh, every day and uh, a number of years ago I, I lived in downtown Vancouver for many years when i worked at the Vancouver Board of Trade so uh, i've i've lived in several places around the lower mainland
0: well so you know the the game from the inside looking out particularly as the city itself uh plans or tries to draft this 500 million dollar climate action plan they are confronted however blair with the daily reality that people like you come into the downtown core now not so much during covid granted things have changed during this as work from home has uh, really cut down on commuting into the the downtown core But typically, under more normal circumstances, uh, lots of people come from Richmond and Langley and the North Shore and White Rock and Mission and so on to downtown Vancouver to work because that's where their job is. And the transportation system that could get them there other than using their car isn't exactly uh, accommodating for a lot of those people. It just can't work it.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, we're in a region where, you know, we we have some good transit, um, but we also have some areas of the region that don't have terrific transit access, particularly if you're trying to get into downtown Vancouver, as you note, many people, you know, all the way out, Chilliwack, Abbotsford, uh, lots of folks uh, commute in every day to uh, downtown Vancouver. So we just don't seem to have the infrastructure to assist those people, particularly those south of the Fraser, uh, getting downtown in, in public transit.
0: So, Blair, uh, you saw the, uh, the, the notes on the wall, so to speak, in terms of the proposed climate action plan. And one key ingredient in this plan that Vancouver City Council is considering is mobility pricing. And for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with the concept, give us a second and tell us what you understand mobility pricing to be
2: well it's it's a it, it's a tax it's a, a charge on the use or of use of your vehicle or bringing it into a certain area uh during certain periods of, of time so if you were driving into downtown vancouver uh there would be an additional you'd you'd be paid paying extra uh to bring your vehicle downtown and you would be charged uh similar to you know using cameras and other systems that uh technology allows uh to track vehicles and and send you a bill for bringing your car into uh, downtown Vancouver I or first, into Vancouver.
0: Yeah, I first noticed this when I was in London a few years ago, and the mm-hmm. city the city of Westminster, the core of downtown London, has uh, this hey, mobility pricing, Blair. And if you want to bring your car into the city of Westminster, you have to have a sticker on the window. I don't know how much that sticker costs, but I would suggest it's a pretty penny uh, and uh, that allows you just to even get there and park and all the rest of that. That's the idea here. Again, by whether it's a sticker in the window or, as you suggest, some kind of camera, similar to what they used to have on the Portman Bridge, some kind of uh, accountability device will, will count cars uh, coming into the city. And then how does it work? The further you travel, the more you pay?
2: This is true, and I mean, if we were looking at a regional, not just in Vancouver, but a regional mobility pricing strategy, then of course that's exactly what uh, I know Metro Vancouver has looked at it uh, in the past and and hasn't moved forward yet with that. But uh, that was is the way it would work, depending on how much distance you travel uh, and where you're going. uh, You'd be charged for that.
0: So interesting. So if you came, for example, from uh, Abbotsford, but you stopped at Braid and used the uh, TransLink parking lot and, and jumped onto the sky train from there and blitzed downtown and so would you still charge be charged for coming across into the lower mainland but not as much as going downtown i wonder where where they draw the line in all of
2: this do you know blair well, I mean, we're, we're currently talking about just the city of Vancouver, sure. uh, who's been actively looking at this. So if you jumped on in New Westminster to the SkyTrain to run into downtown, uh, you wouldn't be captured by that. Right. Uh, but uh, on a, a broader mobility pricing strategy for the the lower mainland, then, of course, you uh, you could be.
0: So the idea is that uh, city staff, uh, the justification for mobility pricing is to, again, it's to discourage. It's the same as putting ridiculous taxes on cigarettes. Eventually, people are going to stop buying them because they're just too costly. That's the, that's the thinking, at least to a certain degree, behind charging people to come into the city. The more you charge them, the, the less likely they will be willing to pay that and will look for alternative methods of getting downtown. That's the thinking, right?
2: Yeah, no. That's that's the idea. You want to shape people's behavior, but you know, in most of these uh, schemes, you want to make sure that people have other alternatives uh... to make their way to go to work or take their kids to soccer or go do whatever uh... activity in their life that they need to do whether it's putting food on the table or uh... looking after their the needs of the family right but in in the current situation you know access as i said you know particularly from south of the fraser uh... pretty tough to get uh, across uh, the lower mainland uh... and get to work without you know consuming hours and hours of your time trying to take public transit and uh, these days, uh, you know, we live in one of the most beautiful parts of the world, and uh, but it's also one of the most expensive parts of the world. Mm. And uh, you know, an additional layering of of cost on people who are already under layers and layers of taxes uh, just doesn't sit well with our members, and and a lot of the customers that come in and talk to them every day around uh, some of these issues.
0: I'm Sterling Fox with Blair Qualley on the line. Mr. Qualley is the CEO and president of the New Car Dealers Association of British Columbia, who wrote an op-ed in the Vancouver province a couple of days ago, suggesting that Vancouver's new uh, climate action plan and the people putting it together ought to be a little more, and I'm summarizing, Blair, uh, reality-based. So before we get to Susan on the line, she's going to ask a question about new cars, I'm told. Uh, what would your alternative be uh if they're 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 coming up with a plan they're talking mobility pricing as as, as a disincentive they want fewer people commuting into the downtown core uh, and you're saying that okay charging people is is imposing unnecessary hardships on a lot of people so what's the alternative blair
2: well i think one of the things we we talked about just a moment ago was you know the the lack of sort of infrastructure around public transit. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to encourage people to change their behavior, but they have to have an alternative that they can actually afford them that actually allows them to get to work and, and live their lives. And at the moment, uh, for many people, particularly south of the Fraser River, they don't have that option of, you know, there is public transit, but it sure is uh, not to the extent that uh, makes it a viable option for most uh, most British Columbians that are trying to come in from the Fraser Valley.
0: So uh, an elevated um, – uh, elevated is a bad word to use in a, in, a, in a municipality that has SkyTrain, but shall we say an increased awareness of transportation remedies uh, required as an integral part of any future climate action
2: plan, Blair? Well, as I, I, you know, as the Van, Greater Vancouver Board of Trade and many others have pointed out, you know, we we, we need a regional strategy. It's not just about the city of Vancouver, right? Um, you know, and and you know, we recognize, uh, you know, many municipalities are challenged for revenue at the moment, and I think you know, city staffers saw this as a. a particularly good opportunity to generate revenue for the city of Vancouver, whilst at the same time, you know, of course, trying to help with climate issues. But, uh, you know, it's got to be a regional strategy that, you know, you've got to take your time and make sure that the infrastructure is in place before you try and put these kinds of measures in. Uh, for people who are already challenged uh, financially and otherwise uh, coming out of this pandemic at some point.
0: So it sounds like there's a role for the province to play here with this whacking new majority government that Horgan and company could say at least step in and go look. Um, Let's let's take a look at the metropolitan lower mainland area instead of just the city of Vancouver and have a climate action plan that works for two million people rather than 700,000 in one corner of the same region.
2: Well absolutely and and we've just been talking about you know sort of British Columbians and and those commuters and and so on but you know there's a broader issue also of of the movement of of goods and and certain, you know uh, trucking across uh, what is it, through to the gateway of of uh, British Columbia in, in in the port of Vancouver so what implications does it have on on the costs of movement of goods as well
0: Okay back to the, to the phones now Susan thank you for waiting good morning
3: Uh good morning um, I live in Mission. I work in downtown Vancouver. Uh-huh. I think that qualifies me as Certainly uh, does. the sort of person that you're talking about. In 2017, I was budgeting $250 every paycheck for gasoline. I bought an electric vehicle, and of course now I don't pay for gasoline, although I do have considerable difficulty finding a place to charge in downtown Vancouver, and uh, that's something that I need. But my question is simply, why haven't they said something, if this is around um, fighting climate change, about electric vehicles being exempted from the mobility tax? And uh, again, as I said, there's a huge insufficiency of places to charge my car very difficult to find charging very competitive to get on those charging stations
0: indeed yeah uh blair any thoughts for susan and charging issues which is huge
2: um. Thanks for your comment, Susan. I, too, drive an electric vehicle, and, and I, too, face, when I go into downtown Vancouver and many other places, uh, challenges finding a charging infrastructure. I, I do have to say that, you know, we have a lot more than we used to, and, and uh, the provincial government and others, municipalities, etc., have recognized, the you know, the important need. If you're going to ask people to make the change to an electric vehicle, uh, you know, they need the comfort that there's a place for you to charge the vehicle, even though battery capabilities have gone up. Dramatically and will continue to do so. Uh, you know the, the range anxiety continues to be an issue for many, many people, and having a charging infrastructure in places where we live, work, and play is is really important. So I, I, I feel your pain.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, Mario Canseco, the uh, head guy from research company, was on with us a couple of weeks ago, uh, Blair, talking about this very thing. He did a rather extensive survey on our preferences for electric vehicles going forward. How many of us are thinking EVs and so on? And the single most uh, the single largest obstacle in the minds of many would be electric vehicle consumers is charging. A lot of people are, are holding off until they can be convinced, as is the case with Susan, who drives her mission to the city every day, that they're, when they get that when it's time to charge, it's not going to be a battle royal. You can just go plug it in
2: and to susan's point about the you know exemption of, of of the charge i think that's a terrific idea should we get to a regional uh, mobility situation, uh, you know, I would assume that electric vehicles will be given favorable status and all of that.
0: Oh, no question. Here's a, an email from Doug who says, if the city of Vancouver wants to discourage people from driving into Vancouver, they're delusional. Truth is, many people have given up on Vancouver. We moved to the Fraser Valley four years ago, says Doug. We used to spend every weekend at Stanley Park, Ambleside, Jericho, the typical day, a long walk on the seawall or trails, dinner on the way home. I, as I can do all of these activities elsewhere, I couldn't care less what it costs to drive into Vancouver. So, in other words, if this becomes a reality, uh, people are just not going. They're going to find other ways of getting downtown. For example, when they, they put the toll on the Port Man, Blair, everybody started taking the patello and Highway 17. Uh, so, I mean, we you find a workaround, don't you?
2: Yeah, you absolutely do, and and you know I, I was uh, reading the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade's response uh, to the mobility tax, and they talked in there about the escape to the suburbs by a lot of businesses uh, because they recognize that uh, doing business in the city of Vancouver is more and more challenging uh, every day, uh, and if they're looking at doing something like this, uh, a lot of folks that work for them, uh, you know, will really face a challenge uh, coming into Vancouver.
0: We talked about the city of London and their mobility tax uh, in in Westminster down and they do charge vehicles um, a a premium to to be able to go into that part of the city. Are there any places here in Canada, Blair, that already have this mobility pricing in place that our city can look to and go, see, it works in blank? Do we have that blank in Canada?
2: Not that I'm aware of. Uh, there could be uh, some places that I am not aware of at the moment that uh, are doing that. And but it's a good question, and something we'll investigate and see if if there's something else that's working there. But uh, I, I would hope that it's a, a regional approach wherever it's done so that, uh, you know, one municipality isn't creating uh, sort of unintended consequences across the whole region.
0: And uh, I would imagine as a new car dealers association representing uh, uh, agents and uh, lots in every corner of Metro Vancouver, all of your members are on side with the regional approach.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Our members, uh, you know, are are really concerned about what happens with their customers and how their customers are, are being treated, and uh, they hear it every day from people who are uh, concerned about the sort of layering of taxes and the kinds of efforts uh, being put forward as uh, perceived as a tax grab uh, when, uh, you know, we need to get down to the fundamentals of let's build some proper infrastructure and then look at some other measures.
0: Interesting stuff. Blair Qualley, thanks for joining us this morning. It's great to have you on the program. Appreciate your perspective on all of this. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. Blair Qualley, the president and CEO of the New Car Dealers Association of British Columbia. Amid news that several of the city's annual festive traditions won't be taking place this year due to COVID-19, and that includes things like the Santa Claus Parade, Coquitlam's Lights at Lafarge has been scrubbed, so we have good news from the North Shore and Capilano uh, Suspension Bridge because, uh, well, they've got uh, Canyon Lights coming back. Here with all the details is Stacy Challa. Stacy, is communications manager for the capilano suspension bridge park good morning stacy thanks for joining us
4: Good morning and thank you for having
0: me. Well, it's great. It's always fun to do a good news story. And, you know, nobody likes to hear about cancellations, but with COVID-19 swirling around and, and unlikely to disappear anytime soon, none of us are surprised to hear about these cancellations, Stacey. But it's always even better news when we get to hear about something that hasn't been canceled. So fill us in, please.
4: Yeah, we're excited that Canyon Lights is returning. Uh, Hopefully, we'll brighten everyone's 2020 holiday season. Um, It returns on Tuesday, December 1st and runs until Sunday, January 3rd. And it will be an outdoor park experience where guests can walk walk through the park and enjoy all of our attractions. Um, But it will be illuminated to bring in the festive season for guests.
0: Well, that's wonderful. Now, of course, because we are dealing with COVID-19 realities, how, the, how will a visit to the park this year, Stacy, be a little different from previous Christmas Canyon Lights experience for the visitor?
4: It will be different this year. There will be operational changes in place to ensure the health and safety of uh, both the visitors sure. and our staff. Uh, during this COVID world we're all in, uh, there will be timed tickets. For visitors they can purchase them on our website so we'll be reducing our capacity um, in our 27 acre nature park and we will require masks for guests when they enter the park okay. and there will also be mask required zones um, in the park um, we have sanitization stations set up before each attraction and after and throughout the park and there'll be lots of places for guests to wash their hands um, we are asking families to travel in groups of six or less okay. as they experience the park. Mm-hmm. And a few things have changed. We, instead of offering our usual gingerbread cookie decorating, kids' crafts, those things unfortunately can't happen this year. But we have the beautiful lights. It will be illuminated. You'll be able to cross the bridge, look below at the Capilano River all, all lit up and it will
0: be a magical experience. I bet it will. Now, let me just make sure that I just walk through this whole getting there uh, arrangement stuff because, mm. Stacy, as we've noted with the art gallery and other uh, science world and other popular Vancouver spots that have changed their practices, one of the first things most of them did was eliminate walk-ups. You can't just get out, pull into the parking lot, jump out of the car, walk up and grab your tickets. Is that the case with Canyon Lights? Are you going to have to have your tickets arranged online in advance?
4: Yes, that is true. So we asked guests, tickets are now available um, that they purchase them they select their date and they select their time and they arrive within a half hour window and that's just to reduce capacity and also to reduce people just showing up all at the same time we really want to make sure that we spread everyone out and everyone has a great and safe experience during canyon light
0: now one of the uh, can you talk about ticket prices at all do you know what they are because you say they're they're available now and and smart people will go oh well then let's make some arrangements let's get on that website and go for it <laughs> so what's the, first of all what's the web address where are they going to to make their reservations
4: yeah they visit catbridge.com that's where they can find all the information there is a canyon light specific page with what they can expect we also have a special advisory page that lists each area of the park and what kind of covid safety measures they can expect to see and there's also a buy tickets online section where they can go and purchase tickets we are offering a special family pass for two adults and up to two kids up to the age of 16, and it's it's for $115, and that includes annual passes for all those from D.C. So they'll be able to come back and visit in the spring, in the summer, hopefully next Canyon light, and um, really get the full use out of it as we're all here in British Columbia, looks like, for a a little bit
0: longer. (laughs) It certainly does. So now, uh, as is the case again with some of these other spots, once you get into the park, and you start walking around, Stacy. I'm assuming it's unidirectional. You just follow the markers on the ground, and you're safe and sound.
4: That's correct. We have um, made a one-way system, different loops that are one-way throughout the park, to ensure that you, you don't run into too many folks, um, it, there's lots of signage throughout. We have designed our little mascot, Scout the Safety Squirrel, and he's uh, making safety fun and making sure that visitors, you know, space themselves in lineup areas at food and beverage venues that sort of thing so that's what guests can expect once they once they arrive and once they enter the park
0: so when you go to capbridge.com friends the first thing you see on the home page aside from some very beautiful pictures is a message <laughs> a message saying operations paused reopening december 1 for canyon lights how long have you been closed stacy since march
4: uh, we opened up for the summer season, so we opened June nineteenth through to the end of September. Okay, and yeah, uh, we successfully opened. We had visitors from British Columbia come, but as you know, with the with the borders closed and with the lack of international travelers and cruise ship passengers. It's been very hard for tourism this year, and we we just imagined that October and November wouldn't be a great time to be open with with locals heading back to work and and children going back to school. So we decided to take October and November to really focus on on planning and preparing for canyon life, using our staff to help put up all the lights in the park, and uh, we're looking forward to December 1st when we can welcome visitors
0: back. Okay, and I, I'm looking also at uh, the options that you provide for people who want to come up and visit, and one of those is the shuttle bus. Now, that has been available in the past. Will, mm-hmm. that, will that option be available uh, this time around?
4: It will. Uh, oh, we good. did use it. We had it this summer as well. We reduced capacity. We spaced it out, and we will be operating it for Canyon Lights. Um, it will pick up from Canada Place. Every 30 minutes, I believe. Okay. And um, it will take you up to us. You will be required to show that you have a ticket before you get on that bus, Mm -hmm. as well as you'll have to be wearing a mask.
0: Okay, but then that's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, if you're going to get on any bus pretty much yeah. around Vancouver, yeah. you're going to have to have a mask on these days. And yep. so uh, if now the uh, website is open, you're accepting uh, inquiries and purchases yep. of tickets, what sort of, uh, now this is coming up as of December 1st, we've got a mm-hmm. few weeks to get all of this together. What sort of early interest are you seeing? Because you can, all these metrics are measurable now, Stacy.
4: We are seeing early interest. Families are excited to be able to get outside and to have something to look forward to, to get out and experience the holidays with their families. Um, our annual pass holders are also required to book a time slot before coming in. So we're, we're handling a lot of inquiries with that, making sure they get their desired dates. And uh, so far, the response has been very good. People are being very patient with us. Sure. Because um, this is all new for us, too. Of course. Our, our ticketing system isn't really designed to be a time ticketing system, but we're, we're pushing it to its max, and uh, it's it's been, it's been going really well so far.
0: Good stuff. And finally, just uh, very briefly, we should also mention that a portion of the proceeds from all of these tickets goes to a very worthy cause, the Vancouver Professional Firefighters Burn Fund, Stacey.
4: Yeah, so partial proceeds from admission will be donated to the BC Professional Firefighters Burn Fund. Uh, We have worked with them for a number of years throughout the years. This event has um, given about $381,000 to this worthy program. Um, In addition to the admission, we will be accepting donations throughout the park for the BC Professional Firefighters Burn Fund. And because we're unable to do the gingerbread cookie decorating, instead we'll be offering um, pre-packaged gingerbread men for sale that um, the proceeds from those sales will also go to the burn fund.
0: And good for you, good for you. And you mm-hmm. did say that you get a hot chocolate or something, a snack on while you're up there with the family doing Canyon Lights. There will be some amenities available.
4: Yes, during Canyon Lights, our Bridge House Cafe Cabin and Lockers Grill will be opened with limited outdoor seating. And of course, following all COVID-19 safety sure. protocols, with our Cliff House restaurant, there it's more of a sit-down meal. Uh, we'll be offering uh, our popular campfire menu and um, we will ask we will be asking guests to be seated to consume food and beverages, and of course, there's be a maximum of six guests at a table.
0: Right, practicing safe six. You got that yes. part down. Uh, <laughs> Stacy, thanks very much for this. Capbridge.com, one word. Capbridge.com for lots more on Canyon Lights coming back December first. Uh, we wish you considerable success, and thanks for joining us this morning, Stacy. Thank you for having me. Stacey Challa, Communications Manager for the Capilano Suspension Bridge Park. you Lights, December 1. I'm Sterling Fox, along with Rudy Kisher. Mr. Kisher is an immigration lawyer. He is, in fact, the K in MKS, the Vancouver immigration and citizenship firm uh, that's uh, going to help us talk about some immigration news from the government of Canada this week as they uh, announced new targets for the next three years. And they told us they will also try to persuade foreigners already living here to stay rudy kisher is on the line from north vancouver good morning rudy welcome to the program
5: Good morning, Sterling. Thank you very much for having
0: me. Well, it's good to have you with us. The Prime Minister this week, uh, right off the mark with uh, immigration, announcing, first of all, of course, the uh, this intention to persuade people who are here on uh, any number of uh, visas and permits to consider staying in Canada on a permanent basis. This is all a, as a result of diminished immigration activity, not only here in Canada, Rudy, but right around the world this year, right?
5: That's right. The, uh, the numbers are... are dramatically down like in a given year in terms of permanent residents people to come here to, to live here and remain in canada is down significantly uh, normally we get around 400,000 anywhere between 350 and 400,000 people immigrating a year it looks like this year we'll be at around less than 200,000 people uh, landing permanently to, to remain in canada which is the lowest number we've seen since like 1999
0: do we have any idea how many foreign nationals are here under whatever permit they've arrived in and are still here? How many foreign nationals are there right now in the country, Rudy, that this per- attempt to persuade to stay might apply to?
5: So we, we don't have exact numbers on that. So Canada doesn't, despite uh, you know people thinking that Big Brother is watching, that we know exactly who comes and, and who goes, we don't know that exactly. Hmm. Canada doesn't have any exit controls. And uh, since 9-11, has been, by some security efforts, uh, experts a a big complaint. So we don't know how many are here. But typically, in any given year, we have somewhere between about 500,000 students and another sort of 400,000 foreign workers. So I would say at any given time, we probably have close to a million foreign nationals in the
0: country. Now of that group, again, you're an experienced immigration lawyer of that group, given the, the, the fact that the feds had, uh, have this low arrival number this year and would like to see that up to close to where we typically go. Uh, how, how many of that a million people who are here uh, for various reasons from other countries, do you think Rudy might be persuaded to stay?
5: Well, I, I think there's a fair number of them. Uh, you know typically in any given year we're taking about 100 uh, we're taking over uh, close to 100,000 um, what we call uh, economic immigrants that would be here and then we also have a spousal class so yes. I, I think we might easily end up with probably the range that we're going to have this year probably close to 200,000
0: do we have a processing problem? The government of Canada, many of its main departments are, are working from home. And uh, this produces delays and longer lineups. Immigration department has never been legendary for uh, expediting much of anything. What's the status on lineups these days with COVID and working from home? And how much more complicated could things become if indeed these uh, other additional people already here are convinced to stay?
5: Yeah, Sterling, you're correct. This is a, a massive problem. So the uh, the immigration department has said that they want to increase the numbers to to sort of a much higher rate than we've had, um, that, that we, than we've ever had a, 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 in the country since. They want to increase the rates to over one percent, which is higher than we've had since the 1950s. Right. I mean, that's the target for next year. I don't know how they're going to do it. Um, the problems they have right now. Um, as you mentioned, COVID has created a massive backlog. Right. So for months, things didn't get done because workers were sent home, right? Um, and uh, sent home to work from home, but a lot of them didn't have the security clearance and the IT setup that allowed them to work from home. Sure. So for example, when they sent the BC, the Western Canada region home, they had, my understanding, um, they only had two workers that were already working at home because of a disability able to work from home. And it took them something like over two months to get the rest of, the, uh, of the, uh, the workforce up and running. So you can imagine what sort of backlog that you know that, that has created. And then overseas embassies have been closed because of COVID in different countries, sure. of different restrictions. Um, they've been sent home to work and aren't able to process. So the government has set up some very ambitious targets. Um, you know, that they're trying to get sort of, you know, in a normal targeted year, an extra 50,000 people through the door to, to get here. I don't think uh, they're going to be faced with a lot of challenges in being able to do that. And we're, we're seeing it all across the board. For example, something simple like a permanent resident card, right, um, which is something that somebody has a right to have. The law says that the, that the government has to issue it. That person needs it if they're going to travel and come back. You'd, typically, that card would sort of you know, be processed in eight weeks, which is something, you know, most people can live with, they can plan for. It's now taking over almost six months. Yeah. Right. So how does somebody plan their life around that? That's how bad the processing comes in that. I have applications that have been sitting for work permits for employers that need people to come here sitting for five, six months. I've got cases in India now that are sitting some of them for a year where the person wants to come here and work, has money to invest in a business, and we can't get them here because the offices in India are shut down. We correspond with the office, and the response we get is sorry because of COVID processing Sure. Debate.
0: So, what well, you've you've uh, you've already said the government has established some pretty ambitious uh, targets, but the gap between establishing the target and actually accomplishing it is, in this particular instance, going to be a real challenge, Rudy.
5: Yeah, I think so. I think they've bit off a lot. I mean, I think they're maybe they're optimistic what they can do with the technology, but. The government doesn't have the best track record in terms of implementing technology. Uh, we've seen that with their sort of pay program, what a nightmare that was. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if they try and start moving people to work from home, it's hopeful that they're, they're starting to make use of these things. We're seeing it. But is it going to be enough uh, enough to allow people to, to, uh, uh, to sort of do the work they need to do in a timely fashion? I don't know. I, I've definitely got my doubts. And we have a secondary problem is that currently they're barring people that have valid visas to come to Canada from actually getting on the plane. So if somebody has applied for permanent residency and is, uh, you know, they, they pass all the tests, right. the medical, the criminal, they said, so you can come to Canada with your family. I know you've been waiting for two years to mm-hmm. get here, maybe longer. They're saying, no, you can't get here right now. And they're putting them on hold. So that, that's why we've seen the numbers drop so much. People that actually are getting their, what we call their confirmation of permanent residency, aren't allowed to get on the plane yet. And, uh, you know, we've seen the numbers in BC go up recently, dramatically, we've seen new restrictions. You know, how are they going to overcome that and meet these targets? So I don't know if the government, this is, you know, sort of a good news story trying to keep everybody happy. And projections, but with, uh, I don't know if they've done the sort of homework on what they think they're going to need to do to be, uh, and the rules are going to have to change to actually get people here.
0: Interesting stuff. Rudy, you've had the uh, pleasure in your career of uh, spending time in Hong Kong, and uh, the next question deals specifically with 300,000 Canadian citizens who currently live in Hong Kong, many of whom are probably pretty darn anxious to bail out of there and come back to Canada, as things are only going to get worse by by, uh, the appearances from this distance, Uh, 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 what about those 300,000 individuals? I mean, China's all up in arms and making threats. Who cares? How about getting those people home? How difficult is that going to be?
5: Well, if those people have their documents in order, right, so if they've got that those are actually Canadian citizens yes. that they're talking about. So as long as they apply and get their passports and, you know, passports, you know, times are uh, extremely slow right now extremely difficult to get a passport because offices are closed right um you have to go in a part of the passport process typically requires somebody to come in in person right Mm -hmm. which during covid isn't happening especially in places like hong kong where where they've got big outbreaks so um you know as long as they have their passport if they don't have their passport they're going to be they're going to face difficulty getting on a plane although most people if they have what's called a in addition to having a Canadian passport, they might have a British overseas passport um, being a Hong Kong resident, which would allow them to get on the plane without a, uh, w- without a visa. So that might be possible. So getting those people home, some of them will run into difficulty because people aren't always the best at keeping their their, their paperwork in order. But I think, uh, you know, Canada, I mean, and we've heard Minister Freeland say that, you know, is a of, is going to uh, do whatever is necessary if, if, uh, assistance becomes uh, necessary for right. those people to leave right i mean i think the more interesting thing on that is if you take a look what britain has done um it's offered uh, a five-year working permit to anybody born before 1997 in hong kong it's quite an extraordinary measure right and uh you know under boris john johnson's uh, government not not a peep from the media nobody complained not from the opposition fully supported so that's 2.3 million people from Hong Kong can apply, get a work permit, and come with their families to to. Uh uh, to to England to resettle.
0: To Interesting too. stuff. Going to, be, going to be fascinating to watch that whole Hong Kong uh, scenario unfold. Rudy, thanks oh, very much for taking time. This is a chewy stuff for people uh, in, in immigration uh, in lineups. And your advice, best advice this morning is hurry up and wait. There's nothing else to be done, right? <laughs> yeah. Thanks.
5: Well, keep your talk. Thanks for having me on.
0: So. Uh, Rudy Kishiro, his website, by the way, friends, lots of uh, good information there. That's vancouverlaw.ca. That's M-K-S, immigration and citizenship lawyers, Rudy Kisher is the K. As we turn our attention to legislation that was tabled by the government of Canada just a few days ago, the Canada Emergency Rent Subsidy, that is the government's revamped commercial rent assistance program, could soon become a reality. They did introduce legislation a few days ago. This will overhaul the government's approach to rent relief for small businesses, as well as to extend the federal wage subsidy until now next June. That's June 2021. These uh, represent uh, issues that have uh, been of great concern to lobby groups like the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, who has approached the government on these matters. And uh, we'll we'll just find out right now, won't we, as to what their reaction is to the new legislation. Laura Jones is back with us. Ms. Jones is the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business laura's here in vancouver good morning welcome back always a pleasure laura
6: good morning thanks for having me on again
0: well it's good to have you with us so what's your take on the fed stuff Uh, finance minister freeland uh, tabled this legislation early last week and apparently it checks a few boxes that the cfib have been uh, uh, urging the government to check what's your overall reaction laura
6: our, we're overall uh, quite positive about this legislation. And, um, of course, it fixes many of the problems with rent relief. And, the, you know, if we think about three main programs, kind of loans, including forgivable loans, which have come under the Canada Emergency Business Account, um, the wage subsidy, and then rent subsidy. And there's a little bit more out there, of course. But if I simplify it to those three big buckets of relief, Wage subsidy have been working um, reasonably well, not perfectly. None of them are perfect, of course. Um, but the Canada Emergency Business Account also was um, great relief for many businesses. And we know that's been expanded as well, which is helpful. But rent relief was just a mess. Yeah, um, A lot of businesses were completely shut out of um, being able to access it. And we see it in our numbers when we said, which programs are you using? You know, that one was way lower than the other ones, even though we know that it was... Um, It was really needed. So, this fixes a lot of the issues um, with that program. It, um, you know, one of the things it does is the relief is going to go directly to the tenant instead of the landlord. The The other thing that it fixes. Sorry.
0: Yeah. No, it just takes the landlord right out of the equation, doesn't it? That's why you and I've talked about this before, actually a couple of times, does, Laura. Yeah. And the big beef was uh, from the perspective of the tenant, the small business person, uh, the landlord had to make the application for the rent subsidy uh, to, to make it activated. And in many cases, for whatever reason, some of which failed to, uh, I don't get, but nonetheless, some landlords simply took a flying pass on applying, leaving the small business just, flat out hooped this takes the landlord right out of the equation
6: this takes the landlord right out of the equation and in fact actually it, it it will help some landlords too and you know we we know we've got landlords in our membership who are really struggling i mean landlords have bills to pay as well of They have, often have mortgages and insurance and so um, one of the nice things about this legislation is actually for property owners, there's um, mortgage uh, interest uh, relief property tax. Um, so we're not sure exactly how it's all going to work out um, when the CRA puts the application, you know, what the, what the application is going to look like. But there's going to be some help for um, for landlords as well, which is really nice. But for the tenants of those, it takes the landlord out of the equation. It simplifies things a lot. So that was a huge, that's a huge, you know, that's something we've been pushing for for months, because, of course, it's eight months now that a lot of businesses haven't seen any rent relief. It's a major, major bill that they have to pay. So, um, so, you know, that can't come soon enough. Of course, it has to be go through the Senate and, and then the CRA has to get its, Uh, piece of it. But we talked to them earlier this week, and they're um, busy working away on the application forms and, you know, asking for some feedback on, you know, some of the pieces and trying to keep it as straightforward as possible. So all of that is good news. The other piece of good news, and and I've talked to a lot of business owners who are saying, oh, no, I'm not, I won't be eligible because my revenue loss isn't big enough. Right. Wrong. As long as you have a um a one percent revenue loss, you're eligible now at one percent, it may not be worth applying sure. to the program. Um, but you know we've got some information we're putting together hopefully to make it a little bit easier for people to understand this, but you're it, you no longer have to have this big high revenue loss to qualify any revenue loss relative to the months um, in the previous year or uh, January, February of this year, um, and you will um, you will qualify So that so there's lots of good news there
0: yeah exactly and and the uh, i i suppose in terms of the back to the rent relief program for just a moment Laura if you don't mind uh in addition to taking the landlord out of the equation and and, and making that the funding directly available to the tenant they've also extended the length of the program till the middle of next year and that will be helpful as well
4: Oh, yes.
6: I mean, this idea of going month to month and, you know, finding out what's happening with rent relief, if anything, you know, a few days before the end of the month was mm-hmm. just terrible. So, um, it's, it's great news that this is going to go through June. And they're kind of lining it up really along the same, um, it's, it's similar to the wage, uh, subsidy program. So, you know, they're going to run for the same periods of time. And, I think that's going to, you know, they're both running until next June, for example. So I think that's going to be helpful in terms of people kind of understanding the government's approach to relief. And so it's not perfect. I mean, the one thing we didn't get, uh, Sterling, which we were really um, hoping and we're still pushing for because, you know, we never give up and we never go away. We're annoying that way. Good for you. (laughs) is uh, But we're, the, the one piece we didn't get is, you know, there are a lot of business owners who racked up a lot of debt because they were shut out of the program because mm. their landlord um, couldn't apply or wouldn't apply. And there's no retroactive relief for those business owners. So you're just out of luck. So the poor design that the government put in place at the beginning, they're not going back and saying, well, yeah, we recognize that was really bad and we're going to, you know, make it up to you. That's, um, that hasn't, that's not part of it yet. And, you know, although we're looking at, you know, how can we push to make that happen? And, And maybe there's a role for the provincial government there, um, to come in and provide some, some relief as they were part of the um, the original um, rent relief and they're they're not providing the funding going forward for this new program. Well, so let me just, we'll see what we can
0: do there. Yeah, let me follow up on that because of course here we, and we have even more British Columbia election results coming in over this weekend as all of those multiple mail-in ballots are, are being decided. And yes, and they're, the NDP is picking up even more seats for crying out loud. They've got this honking huge majority now uh, and the ability with federal funding being made available to them in greater numbers they have a, a, the ability to step in and play a role in all of this here in bc what role would the horgan government be best suited to jump in and execute properly here
6: i think that the provincial governments um right across the piece including here um they have a couple of important roles i think one of them is is to look for where the gaps are um, in these programs. Look at the, for the businesses that. Um, you know, maybe are are still falling through the cracks of these federal programs, or haven't had the help they need. And I would say that those who have been shut out of the rent relief program mm-hmm. and accumulated debt, as yep. a result, big debt as a result of that, that would be you know that would be a good group to look at. Newer businesses. So a lot of business, you know, there were plans. Of course, people had plans to open businesses. Many of them have um, you know businesses that they planned to open in you know March, April, May, and and many have still you know gone ahead and and are are, are are struggling through that doesn't mean they're not affected by the pandemic, but um, they uh, many of them don't have access to any kind of um, help or relief to, um, to you know just to help t- them get to th- through to more normal. Uh, time So that's another group that I would um, encourage the, the government, the provincial government to look carefully at. Now,
0: you and, and Dan Kelly and others uh, with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business spend a great deal of your time lobbying the government of Canada. Do you uh, also lobby uh, Doug Ford, John Horgan, Scott Moe, the, uh, the premiers as vigorously as the feds?
6: Absolutely, so we've got a, a strong um, small but mighty <laughs> team uh, in British Columbia, and uh, we're very active on the on the provincial um, side. We work hard on files like you know there's a lot to do with um, kind of employment uh, law actually that uh, could have been very problematic for businesses that we were um, that we have been working on at the provincial level. We work on issues like um, workers' compensation. Um, And, uh, you know, regulatory uh, issues with the province and actually with the municipalities, too. We've been very active at the municipal level, uh, particularly with respect to things like property taxes, which many small business owners are very concerned about property taxes. And I have to tell you, I think this is one of the problems that is um, coming at us that we haven't talked a whole lot about yet, but municipal spending across uh british columbia and across the country has been far outstripping um you know population and inflation growth for many many years Mm -hmm. we've been warning about this and it's been driving up property taxes for small business that really wasn't affordable at the best of times and we are not in the best of times right now and i can just see that we've got going to have a big problem at the municipal level as they uh struggle with their own budgets and um, and have uh don't have the capacity to run deficits so what how is that going to hit uh, property taxes, so we're 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 watching that one as well. Yeah, when you um, you need yes. it, when you Long need answer it th- to answer
0: your short question. No, that's okay. When you need at the very least. Uh, beware the municipal tax increase, right? Uh, Laura Jones is executive vice president and chief strategic officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Back with us on a Sunday morning, and the reason we have Laura on on Sundays is because by Sunday morning she's usually able to have uh, dis- d- d- gone through the most recent survey data. From businesses across Canada that they compile on Friday and Saturday. And we have all the fresh numbers for Sunday morning. Laura Jones is our guest this time around. Ms. Jones is the vice president with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And Laura, we're talking about the legislation placed by the government of Canada just a few days ago on the matter of the emergency rent subsidy. Your colleague, Dan Kelly at CFIB, the president says every day that goes by without the programs being in place, there will will be more and more businesses making decisions to permanently close their doors. The reason I threw that quote on the table Laura is because you have Sunday survey results for us again today and one of the questions you ask your members right across Canada every week is as of today is your business still open? What's the number this weekend?
6: So the number this weekend for fully open is 66% across uh, across Canada. So that's gone down a bit. And this is, you know, second wave is clearly one of the things coming out in the survey is that the second wave is clearly having a very uh, negative impact on businesses. So that's mm-hmm. down from from where we were. We had gotten as high as 70% on that. In British Columbia, it's around the same number, 64% are fully open. And then, you know, the other two indicators that we look at, Um, of course, our full staffing, and that is very important for people because that's, you know, affecting employment, and uh, about 42% are fully staffed, so still way, way below, you know, even with um, subsidies in place that we've had in place because we've had the wage subsidy in place, um, that's still low, but the one that really worries me is um, how many are back to normal sales, so that's slipped again, and only 28% of businesses are back to normal sales. That's a little bit higher in British Columbia at 33%. But that's the state of the dashboard. And, um, yeah, a couple of other interesting, uh, results from the survey. Um, one in three businesses are telling us that for every day they're open, they're losing money. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's, um, so it, this is still, the pandemic is still a nightmare on Main Street is the, is the headline. And, you know, I hate to come on your show (laughs) every couple of weeks and just be full of such bad news. Um, so let me give a shout out. Um, to to businesses, all the a huge shout out to the businesses who are doing such a fantastic job at managing and dealing with the public health orders. Of course, there was another one here in British Columbia yesterday. Yesterday afternoon, yeah. I have yeah. to tell you, yeah, and I have to tell you, Sterling. I mean, I just think it's amazing how well businesses are pivoting. I mean, can you imagine? Being in a dance studio, um, running your Saturday classes and this coming out and you have to pivot. And I've got kids who are, who do a lot of, uh, dancing and of course yoga studios and Mm -hmm. other fitness, um, group activities were affected. By yesterday, late afternoon, you know, we had, I had four or five emails saying this is what you're going to do. Um, you know, and my, my son is supposed to be in ballet this morning. He's got a, uh, Zoom link. And he'll be doing that by Zoom, and you know businesses are just doing a fantastic job under very tough circumstances because we know they're financially stressed, they're emotionally stressed, and then they've got to pivot very quickly when these things come out. And I think they're doing just an amazing job. And so, just a bit, bit of a shout out for all businesses who are who are you know you see it everywhere. You know the. The PPE, the signs, the clear signs for customers, and um, I think they deserve a little shout-out. So I'll do that before I get into some more bad news.
0: Well, yeah, you know, and I know that you don't like being the bearer of bad tidings when you come on this program, but I I, I like the fact that you uh, nonetheless bravely come on the program and give us a very, very important reality check, Laura. Not only those of us who are customers, but those of us who are entrepreneurs and try to make a go of it somehow or another in this economy uh the, the news that you bring is uh is nationwide so we get to we get to understand how equally we're sharing this with Canadians in every corner of the country
6: yeah that's right and I and I will say that I think in British Columbia you know the um, government has done a good job of trying to keep <clears throat> as much open as possible and that's really important and perhaps provide some context around, you know, where the risks are and where the risks aren't. You know, when you have a mask on and you're in your hairdresser and he's, he or she is behind you with a mask, you know, that that's relatively safe. Um, but, you know, maybe going to these big, large events is, is less safe. So <clears throat> I think that's really important. But the other message I have for, um, for, for, for your listeners is, you know, Christmas is coming. It always, it always comes. Uh, the holiday season always hits us faster than we think. So think about small businesses um, as you're thinking about the holiday season, and it's not too early to start to avoid... Lineups and look for those small businesses online too, because right now we know only uh, Canadians are planning to spend about a third of their holiday budget
7: um,
6: at small businesses and two thirds at big businesses. And I'd love to see that needle shift because it's small businesses that are really hurting.
0: You've made this uh, pitch before, Laura, and I I couldn't uh, agree more. And I'll be happy to have you make it again as uh, we look forward to yet another appearance uh, between now and the end of the year. A couple more, we hope. Thank you for taking time. We always appreciate your jumping in with the fresh numbers and uh, keeping us right abreast of what's going on across the country. Thank you.
6: Thanks so much. Small business every day.
0: There you go. There's Laura Jones, uh, Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And our theater arts segment continues. So far we've been talking with community theater and arts groups in Maple Ridge, West Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby. Last weekend we checked in at South Vancouver at Metro Theater. And this morning we're in East Vancouver at the Fire Hall Arts Center. And we're joined on the line from the Fire Hall Arts Center by artistic producer Donna Spencer. Good morning and welcome Donna.
8: Good morning Sterling. It's a beautiful day. eh?
0: It's, it's just a beauty out there no question about it. It's nice to have you with us and tell us a little bit about Compassion Pricing. This is what brought you to the attention of our producer Andrew Ferrero. When he saw that he went hmm that sounds intriguing. Tell us about it.
8: We've decided that uh, everyone, of course, is being affected by COVID, and uh, going to the arts is a way to actually make yourself feel better, to allow you to escape from uh, the realities of life, and we know that a lot of people's economics have also been affected by COVID, so we decided to introduce a program that's called COVID Compassion Pricing, and it's called Pay What You Will, so you can start at uh, paying for a ticket at $15, and it goes up five dollars by that so it's 15 20 25 30 35 which and interestingly enough since we've been in- introduced it uh people seem to be going for the higher ticket price because we also suggest that if they can that would be great because it subsidized the lower ticket price for other people sure so it's really about access
0: so what now tell us a little bit about the fire hall art center first of all you are an actual old fire hall aren't you
8: We are an actual fire hall. It closed as a fire hall in 1975. For a while, it was actually Fire Hall 1. It was built in 1906, and it's a beautiful old brick uh, fire hall. It is. And it's been converted into a theater. So, yeah, that's where we are.
0: And now, you just last night wrapped up a production, right?
8: We did. We wrapped up a series of... Well, we we weren't actually calling them performances. They were a series of discussions... focusing on, it was entitled In the Beginning, right. and what we were looking at was uh, stories and uh, historical data from Indigenous communities around the Lower Mainland. So we had guests from Squamish Nation, Musqueam Nation, tsleil and from people that had come to Vancouver from across the mountains, i.e. from uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. and also down the river. So it was it was really intriguing to hear the different histories of this community and uh, what uh, the First Nations brought to it and how they have worked with uh, all all of the other, as we call them, settler people uh, over the years. So it was a fascinating, fascinating discussion.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the actual theater itself. Under ideal conditions, Donna, what's the capacity? 150. Okay, so now I'm assuming you're limited to 50, or is your number, because you have a smaller house to begin with, do you have a smaller current capacity?
8: Well, we have a smaller capacity right now. Um, we have uh right since we've been doing live performances again, we reduced our seating to under fifty, obviously. Yep. Um and we have social distancing. The the actual theater room itself is quite a big room, um, but we wanted to make sure that there were uh the the required spacing between people who were in the seats and also to protect all the creative teams. Sure. So it's been a bit of a redesign, but it seems to be working very well. And, of course, we put in all the COVID protocols, uh, the plexiglass, mm-hmm. the the cleaning stations, uh, all of those kinds of things. So we've been working quite successfully with that model. Not getting massive box office beca- off of 50 people, but, but, but we are there to serve people and to bring the arts to the people. So uh, it's kind of one of those things where okay, COVID is happening, we can't operate normally, mm-hmm. let's operate the
0: best we can. Sure, and 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 good for you for, for realizing that's the only way to get through all of this and keep the, keep the flame lit uh, through this Absolutely. whole <laughs> extremely <laughs> tedious process that feels some days, honest to goodness, Donna, like it's going to last for a century, and we know it won't. Dr. Henry keeps reminding us of that. This is temporary, just doesn't feel like it some days. So let's talk a little bit about the all-important location of the fire hall theater when we talked to metro theater last year last weekend uh they were delighted to have the opportunity to tell everybody where they were so because it's uh, not everybody you can't take these things for granted so you're in east vancouver exactly where
8: we're in what we call what we like to call the heart of the old city uh it's that cordova and gore and As I said, the building has been there since 1906. Yeah, it's we're surrounded by Gastown, Chinatown, and of course the downtown east side, Strathcona. So it's one of the richest cultural areas in terms of diversity of individuals and um, art forms, as well as just the fire hall. I mean, we've got artists all over the place in that area in terms of the visual arts, but also recording studios. It's a pretty vibrant neighborhood, and With us being in operation, uh, we're also trying to encourage people to go to some of the wonderful restaurants in the neighborhood because it's a very restaurant-rich area, and as you know, restaurants are really uh, uh, struggling to survive as well. You
0: got that right. They'll take all the help they can get. You can steer patrons in their general direction. They would be uh, much appreciated. We have one minute. Tell us about the Amaryllis, please.
8: Uh, the Amaryllis is a project, uh, it's a play, a premiere of a play written by Michelle Rimmel, who's a Vancouver uh, creator, and uh, it's a story of a brother and a sister who, in a way, have kind of isolated themselves from the world. They've had their own challenges with their uh, their family, and they now live together, and she is a voiceover artist, and he is actually uh, her agent, and throughout the process, of the of the play there's a change in their relationship and it's so it's really about change and it's about bravery and being able to face uh the world as it is which uh, i think actually a lot of us are having (laughs) challenges with
0: no kidding And, and it comes up now uh it starts on november 12th correct
8: That's right. The 12th is our preview performance. It opens on the 13th, uh, Friday the 13th, and I've always found found Friday the 13th to be a fairly lucky day, so I hope it'll go forward.
0: (laughs) I hope it goes well for you, too. And now, to uh, uh, get tickets, uh, I would assume you need to go to the website firehallartcenter.ca and order your tickets in advance online. Correct, Donna?
8: That's right. Or you can call our box office. We actually have an old-fashioned box office where you can pick up the phone and talk to anyone
0: at 689-0926. All right. ca is the other option. Donna Spencer, thank you very much for joining us this morning and getting us up to speed on what's going on in East Vancouver on the arts side of town. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. That's Donna Spencer from the Firehall Arts Center.